Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Jr. and your host, Tiger Gao. Uh, today with me at the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance is Professor Branko Milanovic. Uh, he is visiting presidential professor and core faculty at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality at the Graduate Center of City University of New York. Uh, he was formerly a uh, lead economist in the World Bank's research department, and he has written many books uh, on inequality, uh, capitalism, and then what, today uh, we're going to talk about his book, newest book, Capitalism Alone, which has been a nationwide and international bestseller. And uh, I personally love the book and uh, invited Professor Milanovic uh, to Princeton for this lunch talk, uh, and, and we're here for uh, podcast interviews. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you very much for saying that you like the book. Yeah, yeah. good news. Well, I can't uh, invite you over and say I hate the book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would not be a very good start for a conversation. (laughs) Exactly. No, uh, uh, Mm because there has been a lot of, I mean, comparative politics, political theory kind of uh, ways that that try to explain uh, you know, the rise and fall of communism or capitalism and things like that. So w- we'd love to just get get a first, first of all, like a quick overview of, of what you hope to argue uh, in this book. Um, you know, the, the book is written uh, with two, I think, uh, very big events, type of events in the background. The first one is the effect that capitalism is now, as the title says, alone, which means that it's the only mode of production, the only way to organize economic life which exists today. Now, I have to explain that a little bit because some people find this strange or maybe they don't think very much or maybe they imagine that has always been the case. But obviously that was not. I mean, even if you go back only 200 years ago, you had a large part of the world with unfree labor because you cannot have capitalism with unfree labor by definition. You you have to have legally free labor and you had lots of parts of the world, including the United States, until uh, uh, 1865 with slavery. And, uh, you know, Europe, parts of Europe with forced labor until mid-19th century, uh, similarly in uh, uh, India, to some extent in China, and then obviously in Russia, 1861 was the serfdom, uh, liberation of the serfdom, the end of serfdom. So you had actually uh, different modes of production. So not only capitalism. Capitalism was, of course, the most uh, dynamic, but it was far from being alone. Then after the 1917 revolution, you had, of course, another way of organizing production, which was essentially socialist or communist, with centrally planned uh, economies and with the preponderance of state ownership. So it is only after the fall of communism and de facto China's transition to, to, to capitalism that we have now the situation that it's the only mode of production. The second big story in the background is that the changing uh, uh, relative incomes ratio between relative incomes of Europe slash you know, North America with respect to Asia. And that's also a huge development because 
again, historically, the gaps between Europe, for example, and China and India were relatively small. And uh, it was only with the Industrial Revolution that these gaps became large and, of course, led to colonization of India and the quasi-colonization of China. So what we are now witnessing is the return to the relativities which existed before the Industrial Revolution. So these are the two main sort of background themes. But of course, the book uh, deals with, uh, uh, with capitalism of the Western or what I call liberal slash meritocratic type and capitalism that we see in, in China and elsewhere, which I call the political capitalism. I have to say the terminology is not mine. I'll explain later where it comes from. <laughs> but it's not that I invented these terms. So they, they have been used by other people. Uh, so would you mind just giving us some quick characterization of uh, liberal capitalism, political capitalism? Yeah, actually, first let me just say for the terminology, the, the liberal slash meritocratic capitalism, the terminology comes from John Rawls. He used it in a slightly different context when he talked about different types of equalities. So in his view, meritocratic simply means that there are no legal impediments to you achieving any position in society. So it's not like what people now use meritocratic somehow as sort of positive term, deserving of something. It's really used as a very technical term, saying that meritocratic means there is no sort of, uh, uh, there are no caste system or class system. It's not like nobility, which only nobles can accede to certain positions. So that's what meritocratic means. For him, liberal means a little bit more than meritocratic because he was concerned about, uh, interested in two types of adjustments that um, uh, you have to make in order for people to have similar opportunities. And the two types of adjustments are a taxation of inheritance, because that's to make uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, conditions or starting positions of the poor and the rich more similar. And the second one is public schooling, precisely to make again a, a likelihood of achieving real sort of positions in life more equal. So meritocratic, I mean, liberal then means really uh, inheritance taxation plus uh, public education. Uh, the term political capitalism, which I apply to China in particular, but of course, as I said, to other countries, I can list them later, but China is, of course, the most interesting and most important example. The term comes from Max Weber and essentially indicates uh, uh, capitalist societies where the state plays a role, but also where the state office is used for private or economic gain. So the state is a bigger player than in a liberal or meritocratic capitalism, but also the power of the state is used to actually get certain economic advantages. So in, in that sense, liberal and meritocratic is, is more, it can be defined with certain characteristics such as, as you mentioned, adjustments like taxation, right. public uh, education. But then political capitalism came along and they also provided some of those things. Right? Oh yes, they did provide. And of course, you know, the definition is just singling out one feature of the system that is sort of important. Because in principle, in a political capitalism, the state plays a bigger role than the state plays in liberal or meritocratic capitalism. So it's not that, you know, public education doesn't exist in, in the other system. I'm just saying that that was the definitions were based on some features of each system that was kind of singled out. 
And how would you define political capitalism? Then? I actually, the definition of political capitalism is my own because these other definitions were not, as I mentioned before. I have a, a sort of a tripartite, uh, three features that I kind of single out. And I think it's interesting to discuss that because that that um, that was rather economical definition of uh, Chinese system or political capitalism. So you wonder whether that succinct definition would be actually able to capture the main structural features. So the first one is uh, existence of a, uh, a efficient and professional bureaucracy, which. Uh, uh, is supposed to actually sort of manage the society. And in, on top of that, it was not part of the definition, but top of that actually to deliver a very high growth rate of the economy. The second part is absence of rule of law. Uh, the, and uh, the third part is the autonomy of the state, meaning that the state is not captured uh, by... Uh, either professional interests or by class interests, because you can actually argue that in a liberal capitalism, the state is essentially captured by bourgeoisie or by capitalists and actually does things which limit, which are not autonomous. Really? Uh, yeah. in, in the sense that in electoral politics, uh, wealthy people donate and in that way indirectly control the political class, but you're saying in political capitalism, the political class has autonomy and independence. I mean, they, they themselves would then become the class that... Oh, yes, their, I their agree with that. Staff. I agree with that because I think you can actually argue. But I want to go back first to the definitions and then I'll... I think, but you can, to answer your question directly, you can argue that, and that's one possibility that I indicated towards the end of the book, of the convergence in the sense that I think in liberal capitalism you have increasing importance of wealth. And you can actually, I think, quite well argue, as Marxists have been argued for a long time, is that actually the state is simply doing what the rich want, to be very blunt. Um, so in that sense, you know, there is this famous sentence for Marx which says that it's actually that the government is the, uh, the committee to manage the common affairs of the bourgeoisie. And I think that statement doesn't seem to me to be very much of the mark compared to what is happening. Uh, but notice here that the economic power takes over the political power. But the difference in political capitalism is that you can argue the autonomy of the state means that the state has power to do things. But the state then, or people who are part of that state, take economic power. So you actually, the end point, and I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it will necessarily happen, but I think that there is a possibility of a convergence where the end point is combination of economic and political elite in both systems. But the origin of how you came to the top was different. In one case, it could be through political power that you actually use that political power to acquire economic power, as in China. In the other case, in the U.S., it could be that you use economic power, like Jeff Bezos or Bloomberg or Trump, to come to the political power. Uh, the end result, however, is that you can have the two elites sort of combined into one. 
Because their end goal is the same, is to like, gain more power and more wealth and everything. Yeah, I think the end goals of the elites are the same. The end goal, uh, and I think that's kind of a little bit of a melancholy conclusion, but the end goal of the elite is uh, to take both economic and political power. So I would let you get back to, you said yeah. you didn't finish the definition of political economy yet. Uh, yeah. Uh, political capitalism. Yeah, I just yeah, wanted yeah, to yeah. finish that. So that, uh, to repeat, actually, just to summarize. So the first characteristic is efficient bureaucracy, which you can say it's like Weberian bureaucracy, professional bureaucracy. And of course, China had a huge history of obviously through the examination system and through formation of bureaucracy. And the state, actually, as Fukuyama argued, to my opinion, quite persuasively, that was the first state that was ever formed uh, in history. Uh, the second point is absence of rule of law, which I'll explain in a minute. And the third point is autonomy of the state. Now, what I find interesting, and I think it's actually maybe an interesting twist, is the contradiction between number one and number two leads to corruption. Because the contradiction between a Weberian bureaucracy and absence of the rule of law somehow has to be solved. You actually have there an inbuilt contradiction. A Weberian bureaucracy in principle simply follows the law. But if you have absence of rule of law, which you really have to have in order for the state to be able to impose certain decisions or to actually make you or somebody else Get, uh, get more preferential treatment and somebody else a worse treatment for political reasons or any other reason, then bureaucracy cannot fully and always implement rule of law. It, can it cannot even implement the law, much less the rule of law. So I think the contradiction between these two things, on the one hand, the need for a barbarian bureaucracy, and on the other hand, the absence of the rule of law, means that the corruption becomes an inherent way that the system is being managed. By construction. By construction. So actually what I think actually that in systems like that you have a, an inherent corruption and when people see corruption as an anomaly I think it's a mistake because I think that a corruption is inbuilt in the system because if you put these two things in contradiction somehow that contradiction has to be solved and I think it is solved through corruption. In other words, I'm not saying corruption is necessarily bad, you know, I'm just saying through some kind of incentives and bribery. It's or, a lubricant or, for the system. It's a lubricant for a system. It's actually, I think, makes the system function because if you have, on the one hand, you have a, a sort of follow, it, follow the rules. On the other hand, well, don't follow the rules all the time. So how do you solve that contradiction? You solve it by essentially sort of making a corruption and sort of, how should I say, it's not that you're making it, corruption itself sort of insinuates itself into a system to become integral part of the system. But one could definitely make the argument that the, the case of uh, corruption um, is much better in, the, in a liberal meritocratic system than in the political capitalism. Even though you argue that in, in the liberal system, there's still very much the elite being captured by the rich but given certain regulations and transparency and free press and uh, people still, people's votes still matter, right? I mean, mm. Let me ask, you have actually two questions there. First one is about corruption. 
I'm not saying that, of course, corruption is not existent in, in liberal meritocratic. We all know that it does exist. Uh, but I'm, uh, I'm actually arguing that in a political capitalism, it is really an integral part of the system because it is through corruption that that contradiction between absence of rule of law and uh, uh, sort of efficient bureaucracy is solved. Uh, now, the second question is, going back to what I said before, actually, when I said that you can argue that um, liberal capitalism is a system where where real power is sort of controlled by people who have money. Oh, yeah, clearly, there, I mean, voting matters. But if you look at uh, a percentage of people who vote by income level, practically everywhere, it is increasing in income levels. In other words, people who vote are people who are actually better off. And secondly, sometimes, of course, in some countries, like Belgium, Australia, you have compulsory voting. So, of course, everybody has to vote. So in that sense, everybody has the same chance. But what people do not have the same chance is, and we have empirical studies for that now, I'll mention that in a minute, and you probably know that, um, uh, uh, what the people don't have the same chance is that their concerns are not equally represented at the legislature or parliament or Congress and so on without regard of money. And, you know, we have this, you know, I think maybe somebody of, the, of them is teaching at Princeton, actually. I think it actually Bartels is actually teaching at Princeton, political scientist, and, and uh, uh, Gillens and a few others, Page, who have written about that, uh, uh, looking simply at what issues are being debated or taken sort of into consideration by Congress and or by legislator, whatever it is, uh, in different countries. A similar study was done in Germany. It's essentially the concerns of the rich are much more likely to be debated, to be addressed, to be sort of um, uh, legislated than the concerns of the poor. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. in that sense, you, we don't have the same uh, power. And I think more and more, more gradually, increasingly, I think we're moving toward a situation which is further away from one person, one vote, and it's becoming, uh, you know, one dollar, one vote. Uh, I think I don't want to go into the details of today's elections, but I think for me, it is a, a remarkable fact that uh, now the, now you have in the U.S. a person who actually uh, openly is buying an election, like Bloomberg. They, I think that has never happened before because it was never done in such a sort of a blatant. blatant way. It's just absolutely blatant. You know, Trump, of course, didn't do it like that simply because he didn't have money. And he, <laughs> he was underspent, as you know, by Hillary, by the four to one ratio. Absolutely. But what Blum Bloomberg is doing is just something which is uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, what about the Bernie Warren uh, progressive strand of uh, democratic politics that we see in the States? Shouldn't that give people hope in the sense that, uh, after all, if you uh, sort of muzzle the public and don't address the, the issue uh, long enough, people will like emerge and, and address those problems, mm -hmm. right? And, and for, for example, things like inequality, healthcare. If you look at the political Overton window of, of the social discourse, it's very much the, the society is concerned about those things. Obviously, it might not be addressed in the Congress with legislations, but... No, no, I agree with you, and, and I would, would like also to sort of skip from like today's politics to yeah, talk yeah, yeah. more about, uh, you know, my objectives in the book were not really to deal with today's politics. I introduced Bloomberg because
because of course I I find it extraordinary because it reinforces what I was saying about the power of the of the rich. <laughs> so I'm very happy in, to some extent that he is uh, confirming what is in the book. But um, uh, but the book was really written uh, definitely f- to last longer. I'm uh, very happy. For example, I checked it afterwards. The the proofs were out, and I mentioned Trump only once, and I think the word populism appears maybe once or twice. So it was not really written to be an yeah. explanation of the electoral cycle in the U.S. And uh, it's really, I think, has uh, my objective. I'm not sure if I've reached it, but <laughs> the objective was actually that it actually gives a much longer term vision of what really defines the liberal capitalism and what are the dangers of the formation of that upper class, you know, both in liberal capitalism and in political capitalism. So, so let's talk about the long-term vision you have. Yeah. How do we solve some of those urgent issues, especially when it comes to inequality? Uh, and, and I think in yeah. many parts of the book that you, you, you address, inequality and this kind of divergence between the rich and the poor fundamentally erodes the, the stability of social welfare system and, and, and society, right? Yes. Actually, let me start with liberal capitalism because this is something that uh, is more uh, developed in the book simply because uh, my knowledge of the, of the U.S. system is better and also the, the access to the, the number of data that we have is better. And there is another issue. It's not only the data, but... Uh, the fact is that actually Chinese transformation to to capitalism is of much more recent vintage. So you basically have one, maximum two generations. But in the U.S. case, you have, of course, many more generations. So you can observe also uh, much better the intergenerational transmission of advantages. You know, than than in China because in China it was relatively recent. So if you have two generations, you can observe the transmission of advantage from generation one to two. But in the U.S., you can actually observe from five, four to three to so on. So what I actually argue in the book is that you have uh, systemic forces that push inequality up in contemporary capitalism, or what I call new capitalism also. And these systemic forces, I will not list all of them, but there are actually six of them, but they start with the rising share of capital in total total output, which is, I think, the result of a difference in the bargaining power between labor and capital, which has changed. So it, it is now much more in favor of capital. And then um, also robotics and introduction of artificial intelligence and all the other things which replace, you know, uh, routine labor. So... The, the share of capital in total output goes up. The issue of debt is that it automatically or quasi-automatically leads to an increase in interpersonal inequality because people who actually receive capital income tend to be rich. So this has been the case in history, you know. We didn't have people who were with capital who were poor. We generally had people with capital who were rich. And so that's why the, the rising share of total you know, GDP or, national, or net income, which goes to capitalists, sort of leads to an increased interpersonal inequality. And then there are other elements that I don't want to go through all of them, but some of them you might want to ask me later because it's interesting for people to discuss that. Uh, I would like to point out to two of them, which both have this um, kind of um, um, Greek prefix of homo, 
One of them being homoplutia, which we say new thing, actually, I think it's for the first time in this book. And it is the association in same individuals or same households of both high capital income and high labor income, which is something new, and I will explain it later if you ask me. And the second uh, element is something which received quite a lot of attention recently, especially in the U.S., but is found in other countries, is homogamy, which means that people of similar education and then income level marry each other. So you notice these two homos are actually very important and interesting because they lead to the reinforcement of the advantages. If you are actually at the same time rich in terms of capital that you have, and you have a job which pays really very well, and if you marry somebody who is likewise has I mean, capital income and has a job that is actually paying very well, obviously the advantages are being very much reinforced. So that's the kind of introduction to the to the liberal to the forces of inequality in liberal capitalism. And, and I remember you also mentioned in a book such as you know rich people really want to send their kids to the most elite uh, universities also to reinforce that education sort of advantage. But uh, I, I guess the, the my my first thought is. Uh, didn't this uh, exist back in the old societies uh, as well? You know, the rich marry the rich, the the pretty marry the pretty, the the yeah, things like that. You know, the, wouldn't wouldn't one argue that today in today's society it's more yeah. egalitarian than ever? If you actually have skills and if you actually have some kind of breakthrough technological innovation or whatever, you can be one of the new riches or whatever. No, I mean I said that actually. The, I think today's upper class is uh, most uh, educated and probably quite open to outsiders compared to the classes that were defined by external criteria. So if you were... Family, had, well, or even external criteria, like for, for example, nobility or clergy. So if you were noble, you were born noble, you could be actually poor sometimes when nobility was not all rich, but of course most of them were rich. But you actually could not, unless the king gave you the title of nobility, you just could not accede to nobility. Of course, we know that actually many people did because the titles were bought, you know, so that money did matter then. But let me go to your point that you mentioned, actually, did rich marry rich? It is true that actually that uh, rich obviously tended to marry also in the same sort of levels. Uh, but what I think is interesting today is that... Uh, because of the emancipation, largely because of emancipation of women and ability of women to go to, you know, education, to acquire education, they get good jobs. This homogamy nowadays is little, is different in the sense that these are two quasi-undistinguishable individuals, so A and B, man and woman. They happen to be men and women. It could be two men, two, two women, whatever. But they have acquired very high levels of education and they have acquired all these other accoutrements which go with education and might have inheritance. In the past, you had generally men, or I suppose, who... Well, Sometimes it was the other way, but I suppose rich man marrying a woman who may actually be from a rich family, but she's not contributing, I mean, monetary, monetarily speaking. So there was, of course, maintenance of wealth. Sometimes it went the other way, as you know, you would have uh, rich women who would marry non-rich men who would be smart or actually doing very well. So in that sense, they were, you know, uh, I mean, desirable 
candidates for marriage. But I think what we now have is different in the sense that both of those individuals are not simply sort of coming from the wealthy family. They are actually themselves, uh, you know, accomplished individuals who are actually contributing income and working. So this is, I think, different in that respect. Uh, and, and I think when it comes to inequality, you also mentioned in the book that there is a, uh, a common failure of economists to, to, to distinguish between systemic and incidental factors illustrated by the lack of understanding of some of Thomas Piketty's key formulations, you know, like uh, especially R greater than G, the rate of return on capital greater than the economy's growth rate. And uh, so, so do you think that economists, in a, at least contemporary ones, have kind of lacked the ability to comprehensively understand issues of inequality and this kind of formation of uh, uh, a, a more solidified social strata in the upper class. Uh, and only recently are we seeing this kind of movement and awareness regarding, oh, you know, mo mobility has, has decreased, uh, income inequality has, has increased, and, and such, such so. No, I, I definitely think, actually, the, the case to be made that economists until probably about 10 years ago, and still now to some extent, but certainly until 10 years ago, were very unaware of this issue. Uh, and there are reasons, you know, why economics as a profession has failed in that. Uh, because essentially it really, the reason why, the basic reason why it failed is because it actually considered individuals, all individuals, whether you're poor, middle class, rich, as simply agents. So it actually obliterated the differences which are systemic and which are class differences. Now, I, I mentioned, for example, one case, we, 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 mean, we spent, uh, the economic profession spent two decades or m maybe more discussing labor inequality, inequality in labor incomes, uh, you know, the, the increasing returns to, to education, all that. This is all fine, and actually this is good to discuss, and it was an important work. But it failed to actually draw conclusions from that. First, first, first it failed at all to look at capital income, the distribution of capital income. It looked to, to failed to look what I mentioned that, and you can see the, the, there are graphs in the book, that in all rich countries, distribution of capital or the Gini coefficient of capital income is twice as high as the Gini coefficient of labor income. So in other words, capital has Gini's of 0 0.9, 0 0.85 to 0.95 even, labor much lower. So the change in the share of capital and labor was really not discussed because uh, the assumption was based on very flimsy evidence that the capital and labor shares are basically fixed. So then the discussion was in the 1990s, I remember it, and actually that's what I criticized, it's actually Golden and Cuts, because it was a good book and the study was good, but it didn't take the, the necessary step further. When you discuss inequality of labor incomes, you are discussing individuals without looking at all who is married and related to whom, because individuals appear as individual, you know, wage earners. But these wage earners mate not, you know, on a non-random basis. So really what is important for you when you want really to study a society, you want to study, to some extent, class reproduction of that society. But the class reproduction of society does not happen with individual wage earners. It happens within the household. So in other words, you have to go from wage earners to the place which really matters, and this is the income of the household, and what that household does for their children. 
So I think that's where econ economists actually, and I think PKT made a great contribution by bringing capital back into the game. But before that, they actually really were not able because of the limits, methodological limits, which they impose on themselves to see that, that we might lead, that uh, a high inequality might lead to a fundamental change in the structure of society. And that's, I think that's why actually economists were until about 10 years ago, in my opinion, just totally missing what was happening. Uh, do you think uh, the economists are, are more aware of those, uh, some of the, I, I guess, systemic flaws in, in the way they, they study the subject matter or? Yeah, I think I would say for systemic forces. They may not be necessarily flaws because, for example, one that I mentioned, you know, homogamy, assortative mating, it's not a flaw. It's actually people decide to marry people who are more similar to them. And it's very natural, you know, people go to the same schools, they develop similar interests. It's quite, I mean, I would say even positive that actually we have much greater choice whom we want to, to partner with compared to our parents decided that we should marry somebody. So I think it's a positive situation, but that positive force, that positive thing might be a force for greater inequality. So I think that was, you know, one has to, to realize, you know, the implications of that. So not all things which <coughs> lead to higher inequality are bad by themselves. And that one makes it more difficult to deal with inequality because if some of them are actually good to some extent or desirable, then how do you actually make or design policies that should actually stop that increase in inequality if a lot of that increase is desirable? And I actually yeah. wanted to ask you this because I listened to another interview that you did and you said, uh, it seems that you think incremental steps that address inequality are, cannot fundamentally address inequality. They're inefficient, they're ineffective. Yeah, I thought actually that the steps that have been done uh, in um, building a welfare state are absolutely important and they were the ones that re uh, reduced inequality in the Western countries and that most importantly enabled much greater equality of opportunity and ability for the people who don't come from privileged background, very modest background, to go to very good schools, to get very good jobs, to create really uh, rich families. But these forces, <coughs> which I think there are four, which are really the important ones. First one, uh, high taxation. Second, uh, I mean, use of this taxation, of, of taxation revenues for transfers, whether they are transfers like pensions, unemployment benefits, child allowances, and so on. Third is uh, the very significant importance of trade unions, <clears throat> and uh, the significant importance of trade unions was in uh, import was uh, reflected in the ability of uh, uh, distribution between capital and labor. What I mentioned before is that actually labor power of trade unions was much greater in the past, and consequently the distribution of total net income was more in labor than it is now, in favor of labor. Actually, there was an interesting thing that uh, Bob Solo was arguing, which I think is quite, uh, seems quite possible. His argument was that the distribution between labor and capital was never determined purely on sort of idealized, marginalized principles, but that there was always a rent element. 
and that rent element, which let's suppose the rent element is 10% of GDP, that element, uh, rent element is distributed in function of relative powers. So when trade unions were more powerful, of course, that rent element went more to labor and less to capital, and now it's the opposite. Um, and the last element in that sort of uh, taxonomy of things of so the welfare state is education, wide, more much more widely spread education. So there were four elements to, re- to summarize. One is high taxation on middle class, not only on the, on the very top, but on the middle class, high social transfers, um, uh, power of trade unions, and more widely spread education with an increase in the average years of schooling. Now, I believe that all of these elements, which are very important and which are, in my opinion, desirable to to check rise of inequality, have changed now. And that's what I was saying to go back to your question. It's a very long answer that we are now facing a different situation because clearly taxation on the middle class, increase in taxation on the middle class is really not going to, to, to work. It's not going to work in this country. It's not going to work in Europe. It's just not going to work. First, people don't want to pay more. Secondly, globalization is limiting your ability to actually tax them more. So it is really, you have to take it that it's not going to be politically feasible. Trade unions are never going, in my opinion, to play a role which they played in the past, simply because they have declined in all OECD countries. And actually, ironically, they are now much more important in negotiation with state rather than private employers. So you have trade unions in health, you have trade unions in education, but when you look at uh, Walmart or Amazon or Ares, you don't have trade unions at all. Because workers have no bargaining power due to globalization. I think they don't have a bargaining power. There were, of course, rules that were against trade unions, but they also don't have bargaining power. And I think that 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 many of the, the um, how should I say, the, the uh, job units are now much smaller. And then such much smaller job units are more difficult to organize in an effective trade union way. Interesting. So, so that's the part of our trade So this is, I think, actually the the why I believe that the all the maybe it's not fair to call them old fashioned, but the typical forces that have led to the rise of the welfare state in the twentieth century are not nowadays as powerful as they were. So that's why I mean, maybe that's the next point that we will discuss. That's why I'm arguing that the vision of the future, which should check that rising inequality, should be different. Yes, yes. Uh, and you, you mentioned that the 20th century tools to address inequality will no longer be feasible in 21st century. Exactly. So what are some of the new tools that, that we can So the new of? tools, in my opinion, have to start with a premise or a, dif- or a different vision. And that different vision should be the vision where the ownership of capital is much more widely spread and where ability of people of modest means to achieve very lucrative, let's put it like that, education is equal to the ability of the rich people also to accede to such education, which can lead to very good jobs. So the difference is here, let me explain. The difference in that vision compared to the one that actually I'm talking about for the 20th century is that in the 20th century vision, you decide uh, 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 market income inequality could be relatively 
unequal, so inequality in market income, which means before redistribution, can be relatively high. You come with very different capital, uh, uh, capital that you own and very different so-called human capital or skills that you own. And then we redistribute that through taxation so that even people who have much less human capital and much less financial capital receive something. But notice that the main place where the distribution takes occurs is at the level of redistribution of currently created income. But in the other vision that I was arguing for, you would have much more equally distributed human capital, so-called human capital, I don't like the term, so, but I just use it, or rather skills, and financial capital. So redistribution by the state need not be in this different system so high as it was in the previous system, simply because the differences with which we come would be much less. So let me put it very simple so that's very understood. Let's suppose that the gaps in financial capital between us, between poor, middle class, and rich people, are very relatively small, much smaller than they are now. There will be still differences, but much smaller. And let's suppose that skill levels, the differences, are much smaller. So then our income from labor and capital would be much more similar than it is now. If our income from labor and capital is more similar than this now, there is less need for the state to tax rich and to distribute to the poor. So it's as simple as that. It's actually the state would actually would not need to have a, as large a distributory function as it is now if we enter the labor market and the market with financial capital with endowments which are more similar. Uh, so, just from my perspective, just to make sure that I understand it correctly, in the, you're saying that in the old model of, of redistribution, redistribution and combating inequality, it's all about uh, redistributing wealth through this kind of uh, taxation or high transfer or things like that. But but today, because what actually matters mm -hmm. is your is your human capital, is your skills, or what actually matters is the financial power. And so those are the things that we actually need to tackle and, and, and worry about. And therefore, if we can live in a society where uh, people have the same relative, relative the same access to high education, that would be a much more preferable way than, than say yes. we have those large social safety so, uh, welfare programs or, or so that, that, that operate. Absolutely. That's, that's, you know, again, to, 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 in a nutshell, uh, the typical welfare state system is the following. Let's suppose you're a rich guy, you have lots of financial capital and you have very high skills. And I don't have financial capital and I don't have skills. You earn a lot, but then the state comes, taxes you, takes that from some part of that from you, gives it to me. So it's transfer. You, you pay taxes, uh, there is transfer, redistribution in my favor. But then let's suppose, and that would be like a new system, new vision, let's suppose that both you and I have more or less same financial capital and human skills. So then what happens? We come, you have maybe a little bit more of both of them, so your income is a little bit higher. My income, obviously, is a little bit lower, but the state does not need to redistribute as much as it did in the past. So in other words, you know, you have essentially, it's very important to realize that essentially, if you want lower uh, inequality, you have essentially two ways of achieving it. Either 
by having endowments more equal so that the redistribution is less or by letting the endowments be unequal but then redistribute more. You know, the, the, the final outcome is the same. Just the question is actually, does your vision go after equalization of endowments and relatively smaller role of the state in redistribution? Or is your vision endowments could be very unequal, but the state, will, plays, but a the state plays a role and would redistribute that money? You know, what people don't realize often is that <coughs> distribution of endowments in Sweden and the US is not very different. Swedes also have rich people and they have, you know, highly skilled people who get money and so on. But the difference is that the state <coughs> in Sweden at the redistribution stage takes much more from you in taxation and gives to others who have less. So the difference between the US and Sweden is mostly at the level of taxation and transfer. The state. It, the state. So the difference is not that the endowments in Sweden are much more equal. But, but it seems that, that that's quite effective, right? <coughs> Having the state play a large role in redistributing it. But why wouldn't it be effective in the, down the as, as you mentioned? I agree with you that it's very effective now. But if we have these systemic forces that are pushing, it's like wind pushing you, you know, you have the headwind. Uh, if you have these systemic forces of inequality that I mentioned before, <coughs> that are the rising share of capital in total income, homogamy, homoplutia, and so on, then the only way for you to, to counteract them is that you should increase the role of state further and further. And my argument is that that's very unlikely politically. So we have reached a stage where we have reached, I think, uh, at the end of the ability of the state to use this old-fashioned means of redistribution, simply because the middle class doesn't want to pay anymore, trade unions are much weaker, and you don't have the political power to do that. So in that case, I, that's why the, my argument for endowment comes from, is that we have then to shift our focus from redistribution of current income to making every kind of, not everybody's, but endowments more equal than they are now. Uh, so, so that's the logic. I, I, I know you don't want to tie it back to current events, but let's say we tie it back to current events. Uh, let's say. Bernie and Warren, they propose, you know, wealth tax or, or you know, this high transfer, high taxation plan. Uh, the other, I would st still say that's a more progressive plan than the other candidates, which aren't seem to be putting forth an alternative either. So it seems to be that it, the choice is between the status quo and uh, more state intervention that, to a lot of people. That seems to be the, the two choices. And then you got the people like Trump who are probably more for deregulation and more for... Well, know. I mean, Trump also by the reduction of the tax rates, both corporate and uh, personal income tax rates, actually the top has... We don't have the numbers yet, but certainly it would increase inequality. So there is, I think, little doubt about that. But let me say what is I, I'm, you know, interesting in both Warren and uh, Sanders' plans is that it, they are not in contradiction with what I was saying before. It's really inability to increase taxation on the middle class. They are talking about taxation 
at the very top of the income distribution. And they are talking really about taxation and wealth taxes, which would actually kick in after very significant uh, amounts. I think it was like 10 million and 50 million. So we are really talking about the taxation the top, of, top, of top. the very top. I'm not saying that's not a good idea. It is a good idea. But I'm just saying it shows political inability to actually increase further taxation of the middle class. Right, so if they say anybody with over $5 million or $2 million, uh, which you probably still be the top 1% or 2% of the world or whatever, yes, that yeah. would be very politically uh, un un unpopular. It would be very politically unpopular, and that's why they are not doing it. And it's actually why it shows that in reality, because the U.S. system has generated such remarkable inequality in wealth, but it really shows that even uh, uh, Bernie and uh, Warren are not of the typical, the sort of, I think, West European social democratic bent, because social democracy was never sort of directed only towards the top. Social democracy was directed, I mean, in terms of taxation, oh. taxation of the middle class, affluent middle class, to provide citizen-related benefits for everybody. So the, the philosophy was not let's grab the money from the top and give to the poor. I mean, that philosophy was actually, it's a very liberal, you know, there is this sort of the three yeah. goals of welfare capitalism. So it's a very liberal philosophy. It's like, let's go to the top guys, grab their money, whatever we can they will get, and then just give it to the bottom. The social democracy philosophy was different, was actually philosophy where the large middle class, which means actually people from the 30th percentile to the 95th percentile, would play a much bigger role, they would pay much more, and they would get all these other advantages. Many of them advantages would be, you know, accrued by them through, you know, uh, public Education, educational yeah, system healthcare. that would be free, healthcare and all of that. But the, it was a societal project. But it was not a, a project where you just grab the money from the top. Now, I'm not criticizing Bernie and, and Warren because the U.S. condition is such that you have really obscene wealth at the top. And that the middle class, rightly, doesn't want to pay anymore. So it's not a political, you know, it's a political not starter. And that actually is something that I was, uh, when I was speaking to you like three minutes ago, I was saying that's, I think, politically now become very difficult, not only in the U.S., it's very difficult in Europe. You know, I go up, you know, talk to people and people who are actually relatively affluent, but they pay about 50 to 50 percent to 55% of their gross income in taxation. You know, people don't want to pay, you know, more than that. Absolutely. You know, the, I think there is sense. also a psychological thing when you pay more than 50% to the state, you're yeah. not very happy about it. <laughs> uh, there's one part in the book that I think was pretty interesting because you mentioned that uh, it is wrong, I, I want to quote here, it is wrong, I think, to to argue that in today's circumstances, people are still, as Aristotle described them, political animals who value involvement in civic matters as a general principle. Uh, in today's commercialized and hectic world, citizens have neither the time nor the knowledge nor the desire uh, to get involved in civic matters unless the issues directly concern them. And, and so wouldn't that be yeah. a huge worry, is that, is that the, the involvement and the civic connectedness are fundamentally eroded by technology or whatever other factors that may be at play. 
I think it's a very, I think it really is an important development because, and that actually relates to the part of the book that we didn't talk, but it's a part in the last chapter, which deals with sort of a life under hyper-commercialized capitalism. I think that life under hyper-commercialized capitalism makes it impossible to have this kind of broad, interested citizenry. Because you, in very commercialized society, your time is, every minute is programmed and it's very valuable and there is shadow price on that. And we see the more and more of that with the way that actually leisure activities are no leisure activities which are non-related to financial gain anymore. Even when people go on the internet, which actually they spend lots of leisure activity on the internet, lots of that is related economically. Either they gain something from doing that or they find uh, good deals, which means, again, it's, it's economically motivated. So you go to get travel, you don't have travel agency, you're doing it yourself, you're getting a deal to buy, you know, shoes, to buy, you know, TV sets, whatever. So these, these activities, uh, which used to be called under the, you know, free time, are no longer real free time because there is a shadow value on that activity. Which means that we have fewer, less and less time for these broad political issues. And you need quite a lot of knowledge and leisure time and, you know, idleness to some extent for political and broader concerns. And that's why I think actually when we do political political things nowadays, we are doing it only when it really affects us directly. If you say, well, I'm going to tax such and such income level, or maybe I'm going to, you know, regulate such and such industry, we are concerned with that. And then even in a, what is happening in a commercialized society, we ourselves may not actually do anything for that, but we are going to pay somebody to do it for us. So that's the role of lobbies. So you notice there is actually that we are even as individuals further removed from political activity. Our political activity becomes, we'll give the money to somebody else who becomes an official sort of actor. So, you know, to think that we have, you know, this kind of citizenry that is concerned about, you know, broader issues, I think it really flies in face of what we've seen in many countries is that actually people don't have time and they are not interested in these things. Well, is there, is there any way we could imp improve on that or, or, or fix this problem? I don't think we can fix it. I think it will become worse, but we have to deal with it. I think we cannot fix it because if you have a society where really uh, money matters and money is power, and in order to make money, you need to be all the time on your toes and you have to use your time most efficiently. You know, if you sleep seven hours, it's like wasted time, you know. So in a society like that, you cannot expect people to take interest in issues that then concern them. And they're very difficult or complex. They, they don't care. I mean, I, I fully understand that because you, you, it's something which is not really related to your life. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I think actually we have to see the existence of corruption and lobbying, which is de facto sort of legalized corruption in the context of hyper commercialized society. Why we have lobbies? Because we have a specialized function. 
because simply you don't have the time. Let's suppose you're a rich guy, you're like, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs. The head of the Goldman Sachs, number two or number five or number 10, they're not going themselves to go and become lobbyists. It is really a total waste of their time. They would show up at the Congress once actually and, and give a talk for like one hour, but they are not going themselves. So what Division of Labor does is they're going to pay somebody to do that for them. Yeah, you see, yeah. so they may not even be following day to day developments of that. They you just delegated that because you paid somebody to do that for you. Uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, but, but you did mention in your book that there is some kind of unfounded fear of technological progress and there is uh, uh, and, and you mentioned how UBI universal basic yeah. income uh, might not work uh, so does it seem like how do you view the relationship between technology and some of those issues that we just talked about yeah well, this is a difficult one because um, I think I mentioned technology before or, or, or in uh -huh. other words, would they, would they fundamentally transform the way we look at capitalism? And, 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 and I think they would actually make it more capitalistic. It's more like a turbo capitalism because <laughs> uh, the technology is first, I think, uh, we mentioned technology in, in the context of uh, rising the, raising the share of income that belongs to capital because technology would tend to replace, as we know from the work, for example, David Otter and many of, of his co-authors did, uh, technology would tend to replace uh, routine labor, then erode the labor share and so on. So I see it there as a force that pushes inequality up. But, you know, it's interesting that you asked me about UBI because, you see, let's suppose that we all agree that technology would replace labor, that there would be a lowered share of total income going to labor, that more would go to capitalists, people who have uh, capital income and so on. Um, then, the, I mean, many people are, of course, argue the same. And then they would say, well, then we have to have something which would be a guaranteed income from every, for everybody. And that's where UBI comes in. And UBI, as you know, is really supported very often both by the left and the right, but for different reasons, because the left believes that actually they will be able to actually to put tax rates that are necessarily relatively high so that actually they can actually have reasonably high UBI. The right supports it for an entirely different reason, because they say once we pay these guys to do nothing, they cannot come back to us and say, OK, we want to tax you now. So in other words, let's suppose you have UBI, you can, you know, have people like Bezos and others saying, well, we paid you for doing nothing. So why do you want now to tax us more? <laughs> so I think this is the incompatibility because the expectations of both sides are different. They cannot be both satisfied. But I have a, uh, a more philosophical objection to UBI that I mentioned. I think that the society uh, where a certain part, portion of the of uh, people would not have at all to work to survive, would essentially sort of atrophy, you know, certain functions. Uh, it's like uh, not exercising or not, uh, you know, using your brain. For a while, you, you can do that for one day, for one week and so on. But gradually, if you don't do it, your uh, ability... Um, uh, uh, to use your brain and to work and to function in society deteriorates. So my, let me be clear on that because my objection, among other objections, there are other objections as well, um, but there is a philosophical objection to the UBI. 
UBI, uh, the danger is that it would lead, create a society where, I don't know, 10, 15, 20% of people would be really people who are non-participating in a society, in labor force. And that's actually, there is no UBI in the US, but there are people who are discouraged, unemployed worker who have actually withdrawn, mostly men, actually, we see that now. Uh, you know, that the labor force participation rate among white men in the U.S. has actually declined very significantly after the crisis. And it has declined for the following reason. If you lose your job and you apply and you, get, you don't get a new job and you get discouraged, and let's suppose you have UBI, you have money, so you have survived, you gradually would sort of... Be less inclined. Be, you would be outside of the system eventually. You know, you would actually spend your time, you know, playing games on the Internet, uh, drinking, going, uh, you know, out if you can find some friends, opiate crisis, which is actually the result of that. Absolutely. So, so you know, the, uh, uh, if you were to stimulate uh, a, a given percentage of people to basically stay in their pajamas the whole day and in the underwear the whole day, and not really participate in a society, I don't think that would be a very healthy society. Actually, these people, we know that from the happiness studies, they may be very happy in the beginning because you tell them, look, you have a very boring job, so why do you do this boring job? I will pay you, you know, no, I don't know, $1,000 or whatever, you know, you cannot pay them 10000 but you will pay something else, uh, $1,500 per, per, per month, for example you do nothing. And people would be very happy the first week and first month. They say, oh, that's phenomenal. I just stay home. The point is that if you have a class, of, which means actually an underclass of people who do that, they are not functioning in society anymore. You know, they, it's not that they are going to spend their time, you know, going to the Philharmonic Orchestra, conf, you know, nor to the conferences to, to listen. They would actually spend their time, as we know, they would spend their time on, on the Facebook. Internet, on Facebook, you know, on porn sites or doing nothing. So that's actually, I think, the danger. Uh, you have the French writer Ulbeck, who actually describes these people to some extent. And uh, I think that's the, you would actually have a group of people who would be basically, after a while, they're totally useless because you cannot even employ them anymore because their skills have deteriorated. Uh, they are, they their have mind not, is... The mind. Actually, if you don't have to get up at some hour of the day, like why get up at all? Then you stay in bed for until noon, until one o'clock, you know. So I think yeah, it's a more yeah. philosophical reason why I don't think such a society would be, would be ideal. Uh, I know you have to go get your uh, do your lunch talk soon, so I would wrap up with a couple of quick questions. Uh, first of all, I, I read this very in interesting idea about you know imperialism, colonialism, and how um, th this the, the whole theory of dependencia, the yeah. theory of dependency, uh, which is quite prominent in comparative politics, uh, of how you know the global north and the global south kind of interact with each other. Uh, do, do you think international organizations like IMF and World Bank are kind of neo-colonialist, uh, neo-imperialist organizations? Uh, do you? Well, they are, to some extent, yes. To other extent, maybe not. I mean, as you know, I worked for the World Bank 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, they are neo-colonialist in the following way, is that uh, uh, in the past, let's suppose before World War I, when you had foreign investments in a given country, 
in order to make sure that that investment is not taken over or destroyed or nationalized and so on, you basically had uh, two possibilities. One is very crude possibility to send, as the, you know, countries did actually. You, I mean, England and France did it often, especially England did it, to send warships. So basically, if you don't guarantee the property or if you don't guarantee lives of these foreigners who were there, then basically you send a warship, warship, they bomb the place or threaten to bomb the place. And that's how the protection of property rights was done in the past. The other way was in the past also, that was the case in Egypt and Tunisia, was to take over, and, and China also with customs, for example, taking over the entire customs or the management of the entire treasury, so do you control it. You see, these were crude methods, but what actually international organizations are now able to do is to guarantee property through more sophisticated methods. In, and in that sense, you know, like for example, you look at Argentina today. Argentina is in de facto in default. So in order to start restart functioning, it has to fulfill certain conditions that the IMF is going to impose. But the IMF is imposing conditions that are favorable to creditors who need to be repaid. So in that sense, the IMF is acting to some extent as a collecting agency. So to that extent, you can see the protection of property rights in other locales as a more sophisticated, much more sophisticated approach compared to the past. So in that sense, yes, you can say they are maintaining the property of people from country X in country Y, but they are doing it in a more sophisticated way. So that was, I think, the similarity between you know them and these crude methods that were used in the past. But do you still have an overall positive evaluation of those organizations, of their impacts? Because... I have a positive evaluation because without the, particularly because uh, without the IMF, you would not have, I think, uh, adjustment that would be um, a kind of, it would be, I think, more difficult adjustment in, without, in absence of an international organization that in principle is owned and serving everybody. The global order. The global order. So I think it would be more difficult. And uh, I think the same holds for the World Bank. Even if we cannot really find uh, empirically, I mean, there are quite a few studies on that, we cannot really find empirically uh, a positive effect, for example, on World Bank lending uh, on growth. You know, there are a number of studies for that. But if that effect is kind of, the generally speaking, I've seen probably about four studies, and they are like zero plus. In other words, it's zero, but it's not a negative zero, but it's slightly positive zero. So, you know, it's it's very small if you can find it. Uh, but, uh, you know, we had our annual conference just last week, uh, which is about development finance in fragile states, and a lot of those uh, officials and scholars sort of came through. But it also seemed that they were doing very interesting work, and, and at least on a case-by-case -case basis in, in many, many countries, uh, the growth is positive, right? And also yeah. sort of the, in development economics, you could, you could definitely make the argument that through whether randomized control trials or whether, you know, uh, microfinance, whatever yeah. other methods you may have, progress has been made. Yeah, I, do, I agree, actually. You, you asked me about the role of these two organizations. I think that one role, which I didn't mention, which in my opinion is very important, 
is uh, uh, knowledge sharing and information. In other words, you would not have, let's suppose that they didn't exist, you would not have uh, the quantity of information about developments in number of countries with uh, fairly standardized and, uh, how should they say, bureaucratically scientific method. In yes. other words, what was actually, and I work with household surveys, we have been working for 30 years, what uh, private companies can never deliver you is a household survey which really follows certain rules because they are not interested. They are interested in you know, finding out who has money in order to sell cars or to sell <laughs> ships or whatever. So likewise, the standardization, for example, a system of national accounts, standardization of the balance of payment, uh, knowledge about growth rates, knowledge about, let's suppose, gender differences, knowledge about climate change and all this, is inconceivable without organizations like the UN, World Bank, and the IMF. And I think it's very seldom, not seldom, but it's not often mentioned how important is the knowledge function. Yes. You know, because when the IMF goes to whatever country, maybe, you know, it could be, you know, Mali, Zambia, it could be Burma, anywhere, Iran. Uh, there is the same framework, there is the same type of information that is being obtained. So that's absolutely, I think, crucial uh, for the world, but it's also crucial for the self-knowledge. And I come from a country where actually, like Serbia, would not have the self-knowledge about itself were without. it not without international organizations. That, that so I think sense. this is a role which is, I think, quite important that they play. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, I think we've gone through sort of the mo uh, many ideas, interesting ideas in your book, uh, and, I th and I think there's obviously a lot that we couldn't go through. Uh, would you mind just quickly summing up your, uh, your vision in terms of the convergence between you know, political and liberal capitalism and, and how you see capitalism evolve in the future because uh, I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday and he said he made the argument that you know capitalism will have to go away at some point right? I mean I mean it, it kind of served its function in terms of you know creative destruction right. you know bring out innovation uh, and also getting rid of certain feudal systems it has served that function but the, in order for us to, to, to advance the next stage to address inequality to bring out new innovations it will has to, it will have to have a new way so uh, whereas it doesn't seem very clear what that way may be, but people always say it will have to have a way, right? Yes, but, you know, let me do the, some empirical part first about capitalism, yes. which is, I think, maybe is going to answer your question. The empirical part is that we now have, as I was saying in the very beginning of our conversation, that capitalism is now the uh, much more dominant as a system than it was ever in history. So that's why it's called Capitalism Alone, the book. So that's the empirical part. It's also empirical that capitalism or commercial way of thinking and uh, uh, has really penetrated, deeply penetrated into our ordinary lives. So in that sense, our behavior as individuals because of commercialization of leisure time, commercialization of our apartments, commercialization of our cars, uh, commercialization of our free time has also been very successful capitalism in sort of intruding in, into our private lives. So I would say it's actually much more powerful now than it ever was. But then the question becomes, do I mean, there are certain dissatisfactions with inequality, with class structure, with uh, uh, climate change. So 
do we have an alternative? And many people say, as your friend says, okay, we have to sort of capitalism has fulfilled this function. We have to do something else. Um, uh, the, the problem there, I think there are several problems. One problem is that actually our way of thinking has become deeply capitalistic in the sense that we cannot almost not think capitalistically because everything has now what I said before, a shadow price. When once you start thinking of everything in terms of pricing, uh, then your state of mind changes. For example, I remember a friend of mine many years ago when he went to a first time to an American museum, noticed that all the paintings had underneath written like how much they are worth. And he said it's phenomenal because everything is now very transparent. You don't have to say, well, this painting is Rembrandt, it's beautiful, whatever. You just say that painting is three million. The other painting is one million. So it's very transparent. It's actually, they have all been rendered in one currency, you know, in one in uh, yardstick. In the currency of capitalism. In capitalism. So that's what I think we have all sort of become used to, to kind of thinking in those terms. So that's why I don't see alternatives and we don't have very clear alternatives. However, I recently had a blog where I said there are three possible ways of thinking about the alternatives. I will very briefly mention them because people can read it on my blog. Uh, John Romer recently wrote uh, uh, an article, a very interesting, it's a very mathematical article, but the argument is that if our um, sort of, how should I say, uh, mental, if there is a mental change in our approach, so we are, if we become much less commercially minded and much more solidaristic in our own thinking, then the, the, the uh, capitalism that we know and the capitalism of ordinary life or production would become much more cooperative. So that's, you know, what is important in, in, John's, uh, in John Romer's approach is that the change comes from essentially a mental ideological change that we do it ourselves. And he gives some examples, which, for example, one example that struck me, which I think is pretty strong, is he says, uh, look how be we behave regarding, uh, uh, regarding uh, disposal of, uh, you know, of uh, uh, garbage or things that actually, you know, which we are conserved with the environment. I, nobody's checking us whether we are sorting things between, you know, uh, uh, bottles and uh, plastic and paper. Nobody's checking. And you don't need to do it. But we do it because we are driven, uh, he calls it Kantian approach as opposed to standard approach. We are driven in that case by our belief that we actions that we do should be the same actions that we wish others to do. So even without monitoring. So I think it was a very good example. And, uh, you know, I don't believe that we are going to change because my opinion is exactly the opposite. But it is one possibility. Uh, another possibility that was mentioned by Piketty and it's argued in his latest book, you know, Capital and Ideology, uh, the possibility of a sort of superseding or transcending uh, capitalism is is based on essentially poli uh, policies that would be implemented which would uh, squeeze the, the the range where capitalism rules in two different ways if you 
increase taxation on wealth significantly or on capital, you would actually obviously reduce the economic and then political power of capitalism. If on top of that you increase participation in management of workforce, you would actually take some of the management role away from capital. So he has plans, for example, that no single individual would be able to own more than 10%, regardless of how much they have in a company, they would not be able to have more than 10% of the vote, management vote. So you might have, let's suppose, 60% of the, share. of the shares, but you cannot have more than 10%. So you see the capital is then being superseded in two directions. You tax them, and then you limit their management role. That makes sense. That makes sense, but it's really there. It is the change comes from policy action. Okay. And the third possibility, that's mine. Yes. I have to mention that, uh, is that if in the future we have the change in the relative bargaining power between capital and labor, and imagine the following, uh, population of the world is going to stabilize at something like 10 billion or so. Ten and a half. Uh, meanwhile, we would actually keep on producing more and more capital because the economy will expand. So the ratio the, between capital and labor would move in labor becoming gradually a more uh, scarce factor of production. So the very opposite of what happened with the end of communism, integration of China and India. So you would you then had an inflow of labor working under capitalist conditions. Now you would actually have much more capital and a given amount of labor. Then what would happen is that you would actually could imagine the situation where capital is so abundant that actually individuals sort of essentially take the entrepreneurial function on themselves. So labor becomes the entrepreneurial element and capital is simply borrowed. Now, maybe people say, well, that's kind of strange. It's not going to happen. But in reality, if you look at startups today, they function exactly on that principle. Is that actually people have an idea. They don't have capital. They find angel investor or somebody else. But notice that capitalist is no longer hiring the labor. You are actually hiring him. <coughs> and then we really can argue that it is no longer capitalism because simply there is no hired labor. You know, so... <laughs> These are the three possibilities. I'm not seeing any of them like happening tomorrow, but I just want to line out, uh, mention them because all three of them act on different principles. I don't think that the change is imminent, but I think if we want to think about the change, we have three different ways of doing it. One depends on the change in our own mental framework or what, what John Romer calls Kantian approach. Another depends on policy changes which would actually circumscribe the role of capitalists. And the third one depends on the change in the proportions and bargaining power between capital and labor. So one factor would become more abundant capital, one factor would become uh, more scarce labor. So you see there are three different uh, uh, ways of, of uh, maybe changing the system. Uh, that, that, that sounds great. I know you have to go to the lunch talk uh, soon, but uh, I just want to ask you uh, one last question since the, the name of our show is Policy Punchline. What would be your punchline uh, here for our listeners uh, about, about capitalism, uh, about your book, about uh, some of the new ways that we can rethink the system? Uh, well, the, there are too many punchlines, but I have only to give one because you said it's in singular. It's not punchlines. Right? Uh, you, you can't give, give more punchlines, okay, I, I think one punchline for me, I mean, that I think from, from my book, 
uh, is that um, I think capitalism is sort of single system in the world. It has been extremely successful in increasing uh, global uh, standards of living throughout practically the entire globe. And I think it would even become more because I'm optimistic, for example, from Africa in this century. But then on the other hand, uh, it is a system that can function so efficiently in production of goods and services only with the value system that puts uh, acquisition of wealth on top of everything else. I think it's really, in that sense, human condition. We cannot be at the same time altruistic and not thinking about wealth and generating wealth. In order for us to have a system that is very good in generating wealth, we basically have to behave extremely self, um, in a self-interested way. That sounds like a more pessimistic than optimistic note. Well, there are two notes, you know, the optimistic note is the ability to produce more and more things, which are very important because if you're richer, you have much greater sort of opportunity to do whatever you want to do. On the other hand, uh, in terms of the value systems, uh, you can, I don't think you can have a system which can produce huge wealth with people who are altruistic. Wow, wow, wow. That's a very profound, but also melancholic. Well, could be, you know, but they say, you know, that goes back to what Mandeville was saying, uh, you know, public uh, virtues, uh, uh, you know, pu- uh, private vice, public virtue, because in order to realize public virtue, which is increasing wealth, you have to behave essentially as a self, very much self-interested individual. So the vice, the, what were, were considered vices actually produce the virtue, but the virtue is public. Thanks so much for, for joining me today in this interview, Professor Miller. Thank you very much. It was really very much fun. This is such a such a wonderful conversation. So I want to uh, encourage our listeners to go buy the book Capitalism Along the Future of the System That Rules the World. Uh, that was uh, me and Professor Branko Milanovic uh, from uh, the City University of New York. And we talked about a range of topics from uh, the future of capitalism to, uh, I mean, we started with some of the definitions and how we should think about the different systems and uh, historiography sort of evolving uh, from different system to what happened today and also some of the flaws of the current system in addressing inequality and we ended on this uh, slightly melancholic uh, note uh, of, of the future but uh, thank you again for, for being here with me today. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, and, you. and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud uh, rate and review us on policypunchline.com uh, we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.